Welcome to The Geek in Review, the podcast focused on innovative and creative ideas in the legal industry. I'm Marlene Gaybauer. And I'm Greg Lambert. We have a great guest today. Kate Tompkins is what most of us would call a practice group leader for the intellectual property practice group for Lathrop GPM. But what makes Kate unique is that she is not a lawyer. <laughs> so she's a business professional who is leading the practice group. You know, we hear a lot of comments about how law firms should be run more like a business, and Kate seems to be doing just that with her practice group. She has such a great perspective and unique experience in a role, and she has a very honest conversation with us about how things are going. So stick around for that discussion, but for now, let's get to this week's Information Inspiration. So Marlene, you may remember that we had uh, Pablo Arredondo on the podcast as our second guest nearly three years ago. Can you believe was that? It, was he really the second guest? He, yeah, he I guess he, guest, he was. Yeah. He was. I remember yeah. working through all those technical difficulties. <laughs> uh, well, I jumped on the phone with him yesterday to talk about something brand new that they are testing out at uh, Case Text. And uh, Bob Ambrogi wrote about it on his Law Sites blog. The brains there at Case Techs are, you know, they're just continually coming up with these really innovative search tools. And quite frankly, things like their product, Kara, the brief analyzer, you know, that was basically copied by every other legal information search provider on the market. <laughs> That's true. It's true. I think they've come out with the newest must-have tool in legal research with a product called WeSearch. Pablo and I jumped on a Zoom call this week, and, and we kind of geeked out over this the power of this tool, which uses advanced natural language processing neural net technology to take a sentence that you or I might write and identify the concepts of that sentence and find other documents that match those concepts. So it's not about keywords. It's about concepts. So it's mm -hmm. really, really interesting. And Bob gives some really good examples of some concept results in his article. Well, Pablo walked me through some of the concepts behind the open source neural network framework developed by Google, which they call the bidirectional encoder representation from transformers, or by the acronym BERT. Who comes up with that? I mean, seriously. Somebody that really wants it to say BERT. It's like, who are these people? Come on. <laughs> I, I joked with Bob and Pablo uh, on Twitter that they need to add legal analytics multi-directional to the front of that acronym so that it will actually spell Lambert. Oh, nice. <laughs> you know, and I got to <laughs> ask, like, what about Ernie? I mean, we got Bert and we got no Ernie. Ernie gets no love. What's 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 wrong here? <laughs> so Pablo's mission is he wants it as easy for someone to access these neural networks as it is to hand out yellow legal pads. I just have to say that that Pablo always has the best examples that that, <laughs> that and that they just hit you right away. It's like so you think about that yellow legal pad and it's like yep. hmm okay. Exactly. So, Greg, China, a country that in 2019 topped the U.S. in filing the most patents of any other country, appears to have canceled more than half of their invention patents for being fraudulent. The CNIPA, this is the Chinese version of the USPTO, has ceased publishing patent application filing data on its statistic page and in its press releases. But it apparently has been releasing, and maybe inadvertently, filing data on an English version of its website. 
the English language data shows that there were only 530,127 invention patent applications filed in all of 2020, while earlier data shows there were over 1.2 million invention patent applications filed, and that's not including December. So 700,000 were removed from Chinese statistics for irregularities, and apparently this is lingo for fraudulent. (laughs) It is suspected that the number of cancellation applications could actually be higher, as presumably at least 100,000 invention patent applications were filed in December 2020. Now, I can tell you my original source for this China Law Update pulled the article, and while Google references it in the National Law Journal, it doesn't appear to be there either. Now, there's a lot to consider here potentially lax review processes, possible misinformation, and fraud. If this is true, it has long-reaching implications for the patent world. If the legality of patents is questioned on this large a scale and for this sort of reason, will they actually provide the protections that they're supposed to? I'd really love to hear from some of our former guests who operate in this space, like Nicole Morris to opine. So maybe in the comments on Twitter and LinkedIn. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Well, I I put the story in earlier today, and it has been a moving target. <laughs> so, Ooh. so by the time we we release this episode tomorrow morning, it, it may change again. So we'll see how it goes. But Slack just turned itself into this full on messaging app by announcing uh, this morning that anyone who is on Slack can direct message anyone else on Slack, and. The idea is that Slack wants to replace business email, but the initial reaction from the industry has been this collective, what? <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and my favorite, and this one has caused the story to, to change throughout the day, was on Twitter when people started asking, did anyone ask women about this <laughs> before you rolled it out? So... Um, again, I had to actually come back because uh, Slack was bombarded all morning on this, and they actually had to put out a statement that said, after rolling out Slack content DMs this morning, we received valuable feedback from our users about how email invitations to use the feature could potentially be used to send abusive or harassing messages. We are taking immediate steps to prevent this kind of abuse. And they go on about how they're going to do some internal review. And then I heard later this afternoon that they may just be pulling this all together. So (laughs) I think they're going to have to have a second bite at the apple uh, on on this idea. It's just interesting because, uh, you know, again, I mean, when you're, you're talking about email, there are, you know, filters and things and, and, yeah. and particularly with business email, I mean, you get a lot of spam filters. And so, you know, so only certain things come through. Now, I don't know that Slack has really thought that part through. They did not. I can, uh, I can answer that for you. Uh, so, but what was uh, interesting was coincidentally, I ran across an interview uh, this afternoon from KNL Gates partner, Alyssa D'Amico about her work on fighting against online abuse. And she talks about her work 
and and I love this description that she works in the bowels of the internet, (laughs) which which uh, disgusting. Most people would just call that the internet. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) And and how she approaches some of these the legal issues on online abuse, specifically against women. And one of the things that she suggests is that platforms work with people like her to better understand the issues. And I think Slack would have really benefited by taking her advice before announcing the the and change and then having to retract <laughs> the yeah. uh, their latest feature so uh, yeah i think they got ahead of themselves you know they were just they so sure did. gung-ho about like oh let's connect everybody without thinking of of all of the potential consequences and what to do about them so my last inspiration is economy design and collaboration based so you remember playing those sim games, you know, the oh, yeah. kind where you had an alternative world and your avatar didn't look anything like you at all. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, games are now taking advantage of another reality, economies, virtual economies, that is. These are also called synthetic economies. They exist in a virtual world and use virtual coin and goods in the context of an online game. Now, these are fairly common. Uh, Roblox is one of that I know quite well. Uh, You don't have to purchase anything right away. You get goods and money by doing things. So farming or robbing banks, that's actually true, (laughs) or or killing monsters. Uh, The problem is that monsters respawn, so there's an unlimited supply of resources and therefore inflation. What's interesting is that different game developers are testing out different monetary policies that will be acceptable to the community of players. So if the players don't like it, they leave, and if enough leave, the game dies. Some games like Minecraft allow players and the AI to steal your stuff, and the world of Warcraft allows for gold sinks. Um, Both are game mechanisms that allow for resource removal and stabilize the in-game economy. Another way from Roblox is to allow gamers to get paid for developing collectible game assets, paid for in Robux. Now, this is a fun game scenario, but what might really be interesting is if we could apply this and test economic models for the real world, you know, have one of those gamer tournaments and see who develops the best model. Yeah, that sounds like fun. So, um, mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to take a uh, personal privilege this week and, and mention a non-legal podcast episode that I really enjoyed. And with March being Women's History Month and this being the beginning of spring training for baseball, there was this great interview of Lindsay Adler, who is a, a Yankees beat a reporter for the Atlantic who was interviewed by major league baseball pitcher Colin McHugh on his 12 six podcast. While it touched on the issue of Lindsay being a woman reporter covering a sport historically covered by male reporters, it went much deeper than that. And if you love baseball, Lindsay talks about how reporting on the sport is so different than being a fan of the sport and her need to analyze and look for trends as well as understanding what is important to her her as a reporter isn't necessarily what's important to the fans reading her articles. So uh, if you get a chance, uh, go, go check out that uh, uh, 12.6 podcast. Um, I'd like to share one as well. It's called How to Save a Planet, and the title pretty much sums it up. The hosts, journalist Alex Blumberg and science and policy nerd, Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson, walk us through different scenarios of what people are doing and what we can do to protect our environment. Now, so far, my favorite episode is a two-parter about how kelp is going to save the world. 
Now, their guest's backstory is great. He lived in a lean-to on a golf course selling pot during college. (laughs) (laughs) For real. Uh, In all all seriousness, kelp could be the new soy, but much healthier for us and the planet. And they even provide information how you can get into kelp farming. So that wraps up this week's Information Inspirations. Law firms should run more like a business. We've heard this saying for at least the past decade. Well, Lathrop GPM is putting that concept into action by placing today's guest in charge of its IP practice area. So are lawyers ready for someone who didn't go to law school to step into a leadership role to guide them on the business side of things? Today's guest gives us some insights into how that process is going so far. We'd like to welcome Kate Tompkins, Director of Practice Management Intellectual Property from Lathrop GPM. Kate, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. So, Kate, we talk a lot on this podcast about being creative and innovative on the business side of of law. And I think your particular situation is very much in that mold of creative and innovative. And I want to describe what you do, but I'm afraid I'm just not going to get it right. But I I wanted to just start by clarifying a couple of things for the audience to just show how unique your position there is at Lathrop GPM. And so let let me just give you a, a rundown of questions. So you are not a lawyer, right? I am not. No. All right. And so your background is more in business development? Yes. Right? Yeah. Marketing and business development. Correct. But recently you were put in charge of your firm's intellectual property group. (laughs) That is also correct. (laughs) All right. So let let me just come right out and say it. How the heck did this happen? (laughs) How did you manage that? (laughs) And I want to know, did you draw the short straw? So is this a good thing or a bad thing? So kind of just tell us how this all worked out for you. So no, it's a very good thing. Um, I've been in marketing and business development roles my entire legal career, for the majority of my legal career. But business development and marketing has a natural crossover into practice management. Um, and so even when I assumed the role in a business development capacity at um, Lathrop Engage at the time, we're now Lathrop GPM after a combination last year. But when I assumed the role as business development, I found myself in more of an operational and practice management capacity at all times, given the nature of the IP practice. There's a lot that goes on into running the practice that's not straight up pitches and proposals. Um, there's a lot of pricing, uh, again, just more so that business side of, of the practice entirely that really needed a business professional to head it up. And so that's kind of how it morphed into what it is today. So for those of us who haven't worked in a typical AMLAW 100 or 200 firm, a traditional practice group leader takes on the following tasks, developing a strategy for the practice group, advancing the business development of the practice group, ensure equitable distribution of work among the more junior practice group attorneys, identify attorneys within the practice group who are struggling and finding mentoring and coaching opportunities for them, and many continue to practice law at the same time. So how many of these roles are you able to take on? Um, I would say that I'm involved in everything that you just listed with the exception of practicing law. I don't um, practice law, I haven't practiced law, but everything that you just listed, uh, the development and the 
the execution of our strategic direction, our strategic plan. That's um, something that I'm very much a part of. We have a business development team and I work very closely with them, very much a part of that. Um, always working on the collaboration, the workflow, the equitable, equitable distribution of work across the entire practice and with all of our practitioners. So I have my hands in everything to do with the business and, and operations side of it. Just I don't have to maintain my own personal practice and practice law every day. And just out of curiosity on the marketing part, are the marketing people, do they report to you or do, are they part of a separate team? They are a part of a separate team. So we're under the umbrella of a client relationship and innovations team, which is run by a chief client officer. So business development and marketing is within that. Practice management is within that. Uh, pricing um, and, and legal project management is within that. Um, so my role, role is kind of dual in a way. I'm the director of practice management in title, um, and I have practice management, traditional practice management duties. I also am the head of the practice in the absence of what would normally at law firms have a partner practice group leader. So my firm decided we wouldn't have a partner practice group leader and that given my background and familiarity with the entire group that I was the right person for that. So I kind of wear two hats, the DPM, we call that director of practice management and head of the practice group. So I had a follow up question as, as well. Um, how do you interact? Like, how do the other how do the other innovation groups support you, or how do the other business groups of the firm support what you're doing? We work together all the time. Um, I am constantly working with our accounting and financial department, constantly working with our knowledge resources team, the entire client relationship and innovations team umbrella. Everybody I I, I mentioned under that umbrella, definitely the pricing and proposals arm of that as well. So it's just, it's a constant interaction, it's constant day to day. I think, you know, IP, at least at my firm, IP is unique. It's a, it's a total business within a business. And so to operate in the way that I need to, to make that, that business, almost like a boutique IP firm would run within our general practice firm, I'm relying on the business professionals in all of the different departments. And when you say IP, are we talking about, um, uh, IP litigation, or are we talking more on prosecution? Uh, prosecution? What what type? Good question. I should have specified that from the beginning. So intellectual property prosecution and transactions. Okay. Um, we have an IP litigation team as well. My position is is overseeing the pro um, prosecution and transactions group. Yeah. Well, any anyone that's worked with those type, types of groups knows that uh, one they they tend to be unique. They're they're the brainiacs or the science geeks. Uh, that have gone to law school. Is this something that you think that this type of IP group is really the most adaptable to, to this type of structure? Um, I don't think it's really a conversation about specific practices and, and what, you know, if this structure works best with a specific practice. It's more so the right person for the role. Um, I think, you know, for a business person to take it on, they have to be a trusted advisor to all of the partners in the group, to, to everybody in the group, but especially the partners. And not having a JD just means that I had to, and, and people in my position have to just work much, much harder to establish credibility. So I think it's more about, it's not necessarily what is the structure and does that work for other practice groups? And it shouldn't necessarily be business professional versus a lawyer. 
it really should be more about the right fit for that practice. And it's almost always going to be the person who understands the department the best and every partner and every practice group and how their practices help further the strategic direction of the firm and the goals of the client. And once you find that person who understands all of those types of nuances and isn't just in their practice, their area of law, their clients, um, you've found the right fit to lead the practice. You know, you mentioned that you, you you may have to work extra hard to, you know, establish credibility. So, you know, that's one challenge. What are some of the other challenges that uh, you've run into or that, that maybe you anticipate? It's truly been, you know, in my career, I think being a business professional, it's, it's the thing I run up against the most is that the business side of the house or business side of law and the practice of law are synonymous. And that really just can't be further from the truth. I think that there are a number of incredible skilled business professionals that are working in um, the business side of the house at law firms all, all across the world. And to really to own and know your craft very, very well just frees up the lawyer's time to be able to go practice law and let us own our side of um, or the business lines that, that we're, we're the most skilled in, that we, we have had the most experience in working in and operating. So I, it's been just more of a challenge with that message getting spread that really the business professionals know this side very, very well and can operate um, the business side. Trust us with this. Let us be your trusted advisors and help run this like a business the way professional services groups like the accountants firms of the world of the world that are out there with their business professionals in leadership capacity. So that's been the biggest challenge. But with top-down leadership, at least in my experience, having top-down leadership really support this type of a model and letting the business professionals um, be, be very present and, and very important in a leadership role um, in running that side of the business, it's, I, I've been able to get through those hurdles, um, definitely. But I still see challenges in peer groups all across the, the country and people still trying to break that barrier down and not have it just be about the JD that you hold or being a partner in the firm that can get you to that position. Is this a Lathrum GPM phenomenon or do you think this is kind of the start of something that you'll see more uh, law firms doing? I don't think we're a phenomenon at all. Um, I think the successful law firms of the future are going to utilize the skills of many types of their professionals so that lawyers can focus on what they do best and what they're trained to do. Um, and at Lathrop GPM, my firm, I think, like I said prior, with the supportive leadership team, including um, my managing partner, my chief operating officer, so business professionals in the role as well, so, um, my chief client officer and our partners and others, um, I have that. But I think if you don't, if other business professionals don't see that, don't see that supportive leadership team at law firms, then... They need to go to a place that's willing to allow them to do their best work because senior leadership support, in my opinion, is just the only way that this type of a model is going to work. And listen, I even said, you know, I had a conversation with my with my chief client officer, managing partner about this dynamic and just hurdles in it. And um, even being shy to get the news out about this position, because I know how traditional law firms operate and kind of the thoughts, the thought behind having a business leader in this role. And really what it comes down to is that, you know, experience, in my opinion, is the best education. 
And so personally, you know, I've spent years, years learning in law firms, the business side of the house. And, and now in, in Lathrop for the last six and a half years, learning about each of my partner's businesses and all of the business of their clients. And I think that's the best education that I could have asked for in, in this role that I'm in. Um, and so it doesn't necessarily mean I need a JD to be able to hold it. I think the experience I have has allowed me to kind of grow into the role and knock down some barriers. So when, you know, your peers, you know, what are the, what are they asking you when they reach out, when they hear about this? Are they like, wow, that's so cool. Or, oh, I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) You know, is, is this something that, you know, they're thinking that they'd want to take on, you know, at, at their firms and, you know, are they asking you sort of how to go about it? Um, so I, I mean, excitement, I definitely have had more support than I could have imagined with this, with the announcement of this role people from all different positions, all different size law firms. It's, it's really been great. And I think this is furthering the conversation about having business leaders in important positions of power at law firms. And so I think that's just opened a lot of doors to a lot of positive see, you know, this is, um, this is a conversation we need to keep having. You know, this is something that I would like to explore a little bit more. I don't know the statistics on people specifically in a practice group leader type role, the way that I'm in, in other law firms, I'm sure there are some, but I think it needs to be talked about more. I think we need to talk about the positions that people hold in their law firms when it comes to doing all of the things that help operate the practice and and the role they play in a leadership role more than we do today for the, for the people that are not the lawyers, the partners of that firm. Now, when it comes to the some of the practicalities of the the practice of the IP group. Uh, I'm just curious, is there is there someone that comes in, like if they're setting legal strategy, there's something that either because the, the bar associations say that it has to be a lawyer doing it or um, it's an action that needs to be taken with the, with the court. Is there a leader within the lawyer side that steps in for that? Absolutely. So I rely a lot on the advice of all of my partners, not only my partners, but the, the we call it the Professional Responsibility Committee, so our general counsel. Um, but we do, to answer your question more specifically, we do have section leaders or team leaders that run various areas within my department. And when I say run, they're the head of the biotech prosecution practice. I have a head of a pharmaceutical chemistry practice, head of the trademark practice. Um, and then also cybersecurity and data privacy. So we have heads of those groups within, because my department is, is rather large. We have, you know, approaching 100 practitioners. So wow. to be broken up in the, in the amounts of groups that we are, I kind of need to be able to rely on that lawyer leader, if you will, to help me. Um, I mean, I'll execute the strategy, but I'm working directly with them on the strategy of that particular team, recruitment, um, they're, you know, working with me to bring in new people all of the time and um, the economics of our practice and what that looks like. So very much a, um, a collaborative and very supportive um, environment with the with the team leaders across my entire department. You do a lot with the, I mean, your business experience and you know, a lot of times you get to measure in order to see how uh, you're succeeding over time. 
So, and you've started this, but earlier this year, right? Um, in, a, in an official capacity, it was announced that I'd be assuming the role of the IP group leader, but um, it's really the way the department has been structured. I've kind of been in this role as a director of practice management without a practice group leader, official partner practice group leader for over, um, for approaching two years now. So so what are your metrics then? What what have you been doing to kind of keep the the details on how you, how this is working, how you're growing, um, what the success is? All different kinds of ways. We're looking I'm personally looking at a number of different metrics. It, it depends on specifically what line of the business I'm focused on, but of course we're looking at the economics of the practice. But more importantly, I'm working with the business development team. We're looking at new clients, um, the origin of those clients, how they came in. Was it an RFP or a pitch or was, you know, back when we were in person a lot, was it an in-person event where you met this client or through a referral source? So things my business development team's focused on, but I always want to have a finger on that pulse because it's, it's growth, you know, it's growth for our practice group. And then we're always looking to grow the practice you know, just from a number standpoint um, and talent standpoint. So I'm looking at, of course, attention. I'm paying attention to attrition and retention and what that looks like year over year um, and surveying our team to just kind of, you know, see, see a, you know, professional development opportunities. Does everybody feel like they're growing and that we have a supportive culture for them? So we're looking at that and measuring that. And then, of course, in prosecution and transactions, I've got the prosecution metrics to look at, and that's more in practice, but I, I want to pay attention to things that tell us how we're doing for clients at the PTO. So um, allowance rates for applications or time to months to disposition, um, average amount of office actions, and, and metrics like that so we can evaluate the efficiency and effectivity of the practitioners that are doing the work and learn how to, you know, how to make that um, experience with hiring our firm even better year over year and more successful and have the client see, you know, yes, I want Lathrop to be my go-to IP counsel. So lots of metrics to answer your question, but that's just kind of like a little sampling of the things I'm paying attention to. From the marketing side, uh, uh, the first question that came, that came into my mind was, so are you actually getting them to actually use the CRM? <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the question we ask at all law firms? Right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I noticed you didn't answer it. <laughs> we are actually changing over to a new CRM. Thankfully, we're going to be um, we're working we're working on now that we have combined our two firms. Oh, so yeah. we're we're bringing in a new CRM, and so we kind of have a fresh. Um, a fresh slate, if you will, to be able to do training and get you know people to adopt it. And I, I fingers crossed on this one. So I've seen it go both ways in law firms, but I think we've got a good shot given the combination to be really successful on the launch of the one where we chose. That's great. Well, what what I was curious about is is I could see there being this hesitance for 
turning this type of role over to someone that's not a licensed attorney because someone would automatically go, oh, well, we're, you know, the bar associations really have these rules and we have to, we have to follow this. Whether that's actually real or not, there might be this perception. Um, so is there anything that, that you see as far as the bar associations or the way that the legal industry itself is, is structured that really needs to kind of shift in order for this to become more of a normal business operations for a law firm? I mean, I'm not doing anything. I don't, I mean, I'm not giving any legal advice or opining in any way on a client's legal strategy. Really, the the majority of my work is in how the practice operates and how, you know, the economics of the practice, how, as, how, how it operates as a business, right. as, a, exactly. as opposed yeah. to the actual practice yeah. of law. Right. Well, and, and, and the reason I ask that is because it was, it was only like three or four years ago that the Texas bar came out with a rule that said you can't have a, a chief title because people will think that you're, you know, that you're making decisions on for the lawyers, uh, the legal decisions. And uh, they find, I, you know, I, I think they kind of backed off of that, but uh, this, this is a pretty closed community. And not one that's that's anxious to to make major changes like that. So um, I, I imagine have you have you run into any struggles uh, so far uh, no, in that area? No, I think because just the nature of what I'm doing in the work, there really is a difference between like my role, for instance, and a practice group leader that practices. And you know, I I see they've got a practice to balance, but then also. You know, the IP world, or at least the world at Lathrop, um, I, I think it is for a lot of prosecution and transaction practice, is heavy operational. I mean, it is an entire infrastructure that needs to be run. And so it's very different for, you know, perhaps a, a practice group leader of another practice that doesn't have the same complex infrastructure that an IP practice has to be able to, you know, they can balance the practice, their personal practice, and then, you know, the day-to-day kind of more operational with the support of business people. Whereas on the IP side, it takes someone that has to have their hands in everything and has the support of all departments and kind of, like I had said earlier, run a business within the business. And so without having to balance that practice side and just have that you know infrastructure responsibility um, and operational responsibility, I think makes this different. But I've never received pushback or questions or, you know, any ethical concerns or anything like that ever in, in my doing this, just because I think people know what my responsibilities are and has nothing to do with practicing law. And it, it seems from what you told us that, that, you know, that they looked into this very carefully. I mean, you said it was sort of ongoing for two years before they, they made the announcement. And then you also mentioned that, that there's a great degree of trust. And, you know, that is really the key factor that, that if there is that trust, then people are, are much more willing to sort of explore some of these different ways. And and so if you're successful here, is the uh, is the payback that you get to take over the, the other practice groups as well? <laughs> no. <laughs> Run it over. <laughs> Uh, Well, Kate Tompkins, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to talk with us. Thank you, Kate. I really appreciate being invited and given the opportunity. Thank you both. 
Well, that was so much fun talking to Kate. It was so wonderful to sort of see that new model that, that someone actually took the step and, and did it. And, uh, you know, I was, I was saying to you earlier, I was, I was very excited about this, but also worried that, oh, it's just going to be this complete unicorn situation and, you know, it's not going to be able to be replicated. But, you know, honestly, all of the points that she made were, were things that, uh, you know, collaboration and trust and knowing the business, you know, all of those things I think are, are, you know, can be transferable in, in other situations. So, I think it's wonderful. Then I hope people are sort of looking at that and saying, hey, you know, let's try that. Yeah. And and I would say that there's probably dozens, if you know, if not more business development people that are assigned to practice groups that are doing a lot of what she's already doing. Mm-hmm. And um, I was joking with my intellectual property uh, practice group leader uh, earlier this week. And he was like, he's like, yeah, this sounds like a great idea because this IP guys were terrible at uh, managing things. So. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, and again, I think it's not as kind of back up what you're saying. It's not that big of a unicorn situation as as it might seem like when you hear the story. I would like to see, uh, you know, other practice groups kind of take this on. But I I think Kate's really right, though, because most of the time we talk about change has to be organic and bottom up. But I think this type of change, you really have to have top down people that are saying this is how we're doing it. This is why we're doing it. And this is how we're we're supporting it. And we need everybody to get on board uh, Mm -hmm. with it. So it's going to be interesting to to track her uh, progress over, over the years. Yeah, I wish her lots and lots of success. Yeah, so thanks again to Kate Tompkins from Lathrop GPM for coming on and telling us about her exciting new role. Thanks, Kate. Before we go, we want to remind listeners to take the time to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Rate and review us as well. If you have comments about today's show or suggestions for a future show, you can reach us on Twitter at at GayBauerM or at Glambert or you can call the Geek and Review hotline at 713-487-7270 or email us at geekandreviewpodcast at gmail.com. And as always, the music you hear is from Jerry David DeSicca. Thanks, Jerry. Yeah, thanks, Jerry. All right, Marlene, I will talk with you later. Okay, bye-bye. Devil's back on the ball.